0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond, and offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping,
1: expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix.
0: Little Richard, I Am Everything is a celebration of the life of Richard Wayne Penniman, also known as Little Richard. And the film is a celebration that reveals the Black queer origins of rock and roll, exploding the whitewash canon of American pop music. And through archival and performance footage, the revolutionary icon's life unspools with all of its switchbacks, and contradictions.
1: Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Lisa Cortez, director of Little Richard, I Am Everything. Little Richard, I Am Everything had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival and is screened at many festivals, including the Miami Film Festival, Cleveland, South by Southwest, and Krakow. Lisa Cortez is an Academy Award-nominated and Emmy-winning producer and director. The 2009 film Precious, which she executive produced, was nominated for six Academy Awards and won two. Lisa produced the Emmy-winning documentary The Apollo in 2019 and made her directorial debut with The Remix, Hip Hop, and Fashion, also in 2019. Lisa is an incredibly prolific producer and director. This year alone, in addition to directing Little Richard, she produced The Space Race and Invisible Beauty, both of which premiered at Sundance quite an accomplishment. And if you haven't already checked out our Top Docs interview with the directors of Invisible Beauty, please do so. No surprise from the title, Little Richard, I Am Everything, tells the story of one Richard Penniman, known to us as Little Richard. And it's an incredible story. It's an expansive story. It's one that I knew just the tip of the iceberg about, And as Lisa so masterfully tells the story, Little Richard is also the story of the black queer origins of rock and roll through the lens of the very complicated Little Richard. The film has incredible archival and performance footage. It has some extremely insightful interviews with scholars and performers. And I really love delving into this with Lisa, even if we couldn't cover but a small portion of everything. This film ultimately is one man's search for the recognition he deserved that was so unfairly withheld from him for decades, and it's also his search for love. I urge you to listen to the end where I ask Lisa the one question she would have liked to ask Richard herself. Produced for CNN Films and HBO Max, Little Richard, I Am Everything is being released by Magnolia Pictures and is currently available on Max. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at Top Pod and on Twitter or X also at Top Pod. And now my conversation with Lisa Cortez, director of Little Richard, I Am Everything. Lisa Cortez, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. It's great to have you on the pod, Lisa, and I want to just start by congratulating you on Little Richard, I Am Everything. It's a terrific film.
0: We are having a great time, and the whole team is so excited that we were nominated for a Grammy for Best Music Film. So I'm working on my EGOT. I don't know if I'm going to get there.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, I'm rooting for you. Uh, (laughs) We may get into this, but of course, a Grammy is something that Little Richard Did not win for his music, which is, of course, one of the crimes of modern awards.
0: Yeah, one of the many tragedies in his life.
1: True. So I want to start at the beginning. What attracted you in the first place to the idea of making a film about Little Richard?
0: Little Richard passed away in the spring of 2020, the height of the pandemic, a time that was so challenging for all of us around the world. And when he transitioned, there were so many musicians who started talking about how important he was to them. Immediately, since I was at home taking shelter, I tried to see if I could find a documentary on him and discovered that none existed. So as a filmmaker, when you are looking at a person like Little Richard, whose contributions are more than just music. He's affecting culture. He is affecting revolutions with his music. It's like, okay, we need to do a deep dive and discover and really create this documentary to deal with the absence that existed.
1: Yeah, absence is definitely something that, comes up in the film, erasure, obliteration. And this film is a much-needed corrective because of all of those intentional effects. Two of the threads that you follow throughout the film, one, of course, is Little Richard's revolutionary music, and the other is his queer identity and how understanding and appreciating these two things and how they contributed one to the other is really essential, I think, to understanding and appreciating Little Richard as a person, an artist, and an innovator. His queerness, it's not just an aside here, but it's a a major theme in the movie, and really just an exploration of his sexuality, both his sort of publicly performed sexuality and also that in his private life. So what I'd like to ask is, you know, is his queerness something that you knew you wanted to focus on And the queerness of his music, I would say, something you wanted to focus on from the outset? Or did you come to this perspective over time as you were researching the project?
0: When I started researching the project, I was immediately struck by this Mike Douglas interview with Liberace and Little Richard on the same couch. And I thought about these men. Liberace, remember, becomes a star in the 40s before Little Richard, but in the case of both of them, they were visibly presenting queerness, but revoking it at the same time. As a storyteller, I'm interested in the 360. What are all of the things that formed Richard and upset his music? And so... There was no way that one could not tell his story and make his queerness an aside, particularly when you look at the early days. You know, Richard is kicked out of his home because he's queer. He is seen and invited to the stage by a queer woman, Sister Rosetta Tharp. He then goes on the road and performs in drag. Even though most of the public did not know about these really formative moments in Richard's life, they are so important in shaping how he engaged in this roller coaster ride between the sacred and the profane, but also how he is uh, a trickster in some ways of presenting one way, but not fully embracing who he is.
1: Yeah, and that tension is throughout the film and is brought to the fore by any number of great interviews that you have with people in the movie. And it's also something through the archival that you show us then we can discover ourselves. You know, his career, Little Richard's career is so vast and it and it connects with so many themes and historical moments in terms of American popular music queer identity, American history, Black history, the Black church, and on and on and on. Once you start pulling on these threads, it's really hard to stop, I'm sure, as a filmmaker. How did you manage to keep all of these different themes and elements in mind without getting lost in just the sheer vastness of this topic?
0: The structural integrity of the film, I like to say, is provided by Richard. When we started there was a tremendous kind of outreach to discover how much archival kid we find where Richard is telling his story. I knew I wanted to give Richard the agency that he felt that sometimes had been denied to him in his life. So I was like, okay, we are going to find all of the major story moments from cradle to grave that Richard is narrating. And then we'd start looking at the invisible thread that we start pulling. Richard is always going to be centered, but it was important for me and for all the films that I do, not only do I create a timeline for the individual, but I also create a timeline for culture. You know, like you're born in 1933. What's it like to be a black person in America at that moment? in Macon, Georgia, in the South. Okay, let's move on to the next beat. Let's move on to 1955 and this explosion of Tutti Frutti on the scene. But let's also look at, this is a moment where Emmett Till is murdered in the South. And so there is, with the film, always an intention to be looking at history, but from a contemporary perspective and for the past and present to be in conversation. Because I do believe that the past is a prologue to the moment that we are in now. And there is no greater iconic queer music performer, greater than Little Richard, who drove so much of the change that we now have seen evident in the world I.e., you're not going to have Little Nas X if you don't have Little Richard. The things that Little Richard was so brave to do, Little Nas X can live out loud and cheer as a part of his gift.
1: He was also, like all of us, a product of a time and place, Little Richard, that is. And there's a quote toward the beginning from the scholar Zondria Robinson, that presents the context of his southern roots by saying the South is the home of all things queer. That quote really stuck with me, you know, because given the religious conservatism of the South, it's a fascinating statement. How do you think the many contradictions and dualities in the South give us a better understanding of little Richard and how he became quote unquote little Richard?
0: Well, Ventrios says that. It's not only the home of queerness, but of the non-normative. For Richard, what we see in Macon, Georgia, that is so shocking is when he is kicked out of his home, he goes to stay with a white couple who have a gay bar. Where white and black people come together. This idea goes against everything we've been taught historically. You know, white and black people are not supposed to be mixing together in a bar and be queer. But downtown Macon, Georgia, Anne's TikTok is there as a testament for a place of refuge for him. Richard, from a very early age, was cross-dressing and was ostracized by people in the community. And so... I think that is the power of Richard, not only his musicality, but how he took what other people demonized and turned it into his superpower.
1: He also had a really strong sense of what he wanted to say musically. You know, he wasn't about to just inherit musical traditions or Black musical traditions that were sort of imposed on him by others. He had his own voice, his own musical vision for what he wanted to do. And that just explodes with Tutti Frutti, recorded in 1955. It's, as you present in the film, it's like the Big Bang in American popular music. It's that important. It's that revolutionary. It's the moment of the birth of rock and roll. But it also seems to kind of have set the pattern of Little Richard being forced to compromise. In this case, he has to take on a co-writer to tone down the sexually explicit lyrics And it sets him on this path of being exploited by record executives. But, you know, it did launch his career, but it's just at its core, it's an incredible song, right? How key to unlocking this whole story, this whole film, was that initial recording of Tutti Frutti?
0: When we started the film in talking with our music supervisor, Jonathan Feingold, the first thing he was tasked with was okay, well, let's see if we can get these important songs, especially Tutti Frutti, at a rate that we can afford, because you can't tell Little Richard's story without the music, and certainly his origin story as an artist really takes off with that song. It, you know, There are other recordings before, but they don't have the presence. They don't have the voice. They don't have the verb. They don't have the sexuality that Richard brings to Tutti Frutti. Because Tutti Frutti, even when the lyrics get cleaned up, still has a sexy swagger to it.
1: It sure does. Mm -hmm. And an undeniable power because of that. You began your career as a music executive, right? Yes. This industry, you know how it works from the inside out. How did your insights into the music business? inform your research into the way Little Richard was treated and mistreated by industry executives and really by the whole infrastructure of popular music and rock and roll?
0: One of my first jobs was working at Def Jam Records at Rush Artist Management in the golden age of hip hop in the late 80s. I then went on to be an A&R person at Mercury Records and signed and developed artists. So I know that world and all the great things that could happen for an artist, but also all of the traps that an artist can fall into if they don't have the right label or the best representation. And in looking at Richard's story, one of the great poignant drivers in his life is compensation, is being treated fairly, and then seeing people who he inspired go on to make more money and achieve the acclaim that he feels should have come to him. I think one of the things that is holding Richard back is these bad deals that he becomes a party to. The film, at one point, at one cup, we actually did a deeper dive into the music business, but then it started to become a little bit too much inside baseball. But a fun story is in the film, we see Richard protesting ATV music. ATV had purchased the Specialty Records catalog, which of course had his seminal hits on Specialty. And it did turn out that once Michael Jackson bought the ATV catalog, he actually gave Richard money. He felt so bad. About Richard selling his rights to Tutti Frutti for two hundred and fifty dollars, that he was able to provide him with just some compensation for all that had been lost to him financially.
1: Well, it was about time. His music—it's important on so many le- on so many levels. At one point, he says, "My music broke down the walls of segregation," and certainly. His music had crossover appeal. It brought white people into black spaces and to some extent did help push aside the color barrier. But it also, you alluded to Emmett Till earlier, it also brought the white power structure down on him and his band. He was beaten by police, arrested numerous times. How do you place his music in terms of its importance as far as bringing down the walls of segregation, as he puts it?
0: Little Richard says in the film, that he, he brought down the walls of segregation, but we all know that the work to provide access and equality for African-Americans during the civil rights movement occurred in different spaces through the work of everyone from Freedom Riders to Dr. King and the four little girls who were killed. So... I think what Richard is trying to say is that when you bring Black and white kids together and through the joy of music, they start to see beyond what they have been told by their parents. They see beyond the supposed differences and it contributes to the slow march. It certainly is not, I don't think, an accelerant for civil rights, but it's one of the many moments that start to break down traditional racist ideas. And hopefully, but then by the time we get to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, there are some of those teens who have now grown up and support the true change that then has to take start to take place in this country.
1: The white artists who were influenced by Little Richard and benefited from him and capitalized on him, they're a veritable who's who of rock and roll superstars from Elvis to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie. They're all in this movie. Even Pat Boone is here, which makes a lot of sense, given the Little Richard songs that Pat Boone recorded. To some extent in the movie, we see them paying homage to, to Little Richard. One also maybe gets the sense that they don't ever want to directly say, which I guess is understandable, yeah, I I ripped him off. Or, yeah, I got the credit and the fame and the wealth that he deserved, but so be it. I think you interview Mick Jagger in the film, is that right? Yes. When you interviewed Mick Jagger and talked about Little Richard, what is the sense that you got about how Mick views the early part of his career now in relation to Little Richard. I mean, you said earlier that you like to see the past and the present in conversation in your movies, and I'm just curious how the present-day Mick views the Mick and the Rolling Stones of the early 60s.
0: What I enjoyed about the conversation with Mick Jagger was not only our shared appreciation of the contributions of Sister Ozenasar, but his joy at talking about What he learned from Richard as an opening app that was only a bar band with a cover tune out at that time. His feeling is like, wow, I learned how to work a stage. 30 nights in a row, we were opening for Richard. But I don't feel that he has never been in denial, he meeting Mick Jagger about his love, admiration of blues artist, of early rock and roll artists. And this film, I felt he engaged with on a really joyful level because he wanted to help celebrate Richard and to know exactly what he was able to learn from him. He didn't try to say, oh, I came up with this idea of calling me response and working an audience on my own. He is very clear about his origin story and his connection to to not only Richard, but to other Black artists.
1: Yeah, and that does come through in the film. And I think it, again, just increases one's appreciation and admiration for Little Richard and how much of what he was doing was truly original. There's a photo that was taken of Little Richard with the Beatles that is just incredible. I, I, I love that photo. It says so much. And it's taken in Liverpool, I think in 1962, the year before the Beatles were anybody really, they were just another British, new British band at that point. And in this photo, and I love that you kind of show us go in into the photo. So we see the detail. They're sitting there around him and they're all holding his two hands. So I think you have three Beatles who are holding mm-hmm. his right hand and... I think it's John who's holding his left hand, there's something about the fact that whoever directed this photo or the group themselves on their own just decided, we need to touch this man. We need to hold his hand. It's remarkable. What what was your reaction when you saw that photo?
0: Seeing the photo and then hearing Richard's narration is so moving because his whole thing is that Brian Epstein tells him he has these four lads. And so this idea that he goes to Liverpool, he meets them, and they're over the moon about being in his presence is so touching because we know the Beatles to then become, you know, they come to the States, they bring the British invasion. They're a part almost of erasing from the public's consciousness, this idea of the importance of the Little Richards, the Jerry Lee Lewis, all these great rock and roll artists get pushed to the side when the British invasion comes. So the picture is both moving, but it's also an interesting foreshadow of what we know is going to happen.
1: It is. And it it also metaphorically, it's like they're touching him, hoping some of the magic is going to rub off. And I guess it did. The Little Richard story, as I said, it's vast. It has many twists and turns. And one of the most significant is that he goes on this trip to Australia to play music. He has a vision on the plane and he full stop decides he's done with rock and roll and he's going to go to the Lord. He then enrolls in a conservative Seventh-day Adventist college in Huntsville, Alabama to get his college degree, which he does. And from here on out, it seems like Little Richard is veering at one point or another between basically preaching the gospel, singing gospel music, to being liberated and performing rock and roll again. I, I don't know that we've ever seen a public personality go back and forth like this so many times. It's downright vertiginous following his career. Why do you think he could never fully commit over time to one version of himself or the other?
0: Well, you know, Richard definitely navigates between the extremes of the sacred and uh, the profane. But when I look at Richard's story, I always think back to his beginning. You know, his father is a bootlegger. He attends two different kinds of church, one which is Baptist, more sedate, another that is Pentecostal. So he comes into the world living between extremes. And then as he's trying to navigate between his squareness and acceptance, that's what is always a part of the churn for Richard. And the extremes are lived out loud. So, He's not a minor figure who we haven't heard their music and love. He's someone who's on our, he's on our radios, he's on our TV. And he's telling you that he's no longer gay. He's telling you that he's selling Bibles. He's telling you that he's, you know, if you go back in time, just the king and queen of rock and roll. So he is living his life in such a public way that I think we all are captivated by the various flames that the moth has drawn to.
1: You mentioned the Mike Douglas appearance that he made with Liberace, sitting with him on the couch. And there's a clip with him on the David Letterman show, and he's basically renouncing his gay identity at that point. And the, the picture of David Letterman is he's just baffled. <laughs> I mean, you look at Letterman's face and he just doesn't know what to say or what to make of it.
0: When I see David Letterman's reaction, it seems like he can't believe it. He does not accept that Richard isn't just doing this to get a, a public response. He just feel, I I feel like David Letterman's like, this was not in the
1: note cards. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not of the pre-meeting. But I think it also does, yeah, it speaks to this, his, Richard's unpredictability, his spontaneity. I mean, he was going to reinvent himself in the moment and people could take it however they wanted Yeah, or not. Give
0: him a platform and he's going to work it.
1: In addition to archival, in addition to interviews, and there's some great interviews here, you also feature several contemporary musicians in the film who perform. You've got... Valerie June, Corey Henry, and John P. Key. What gave you the idea to have these sort of mini performances in the film?
0: When I started thinking about telling Richard's story, I always knew I wanted to have these interstitials that I call dreamscapes. And the purpose of the dreamscape was to continue this visual vocabulary that's established at the top of the film which alludes to this idea of Richard is this cosmic force. He is from another world. He has unleashed this energy. And so every time that we go to one of these interstitial dreamscapes, we are able to have an immersive experience that speaks to what it might have felt like for Richard. I call them portals of possibility. You know, when he meets Sister Rosetta and sees her, and he then says very clearly, I knew at that moment that I was going to be a star. And of course, unleashing Tutti Frutti on the world is quite cosmic in its effect. The artists were interesting because they are a part of the contemporary legacy. In the case of John P. Key, he actually knew Little Richard, but with Valerie June, she was a huge fan of Sister Rosetta Tharpe. And for Corey, he is a multidisciplinary artist, but he started in the church. So each of them had tremendous regard for him. They are doing something different, but in the tradition of where Richard was drawing from.
1: I really love those moments. You have a couple of interviews with people who knew Richard quite well, Sir Lady Java and Lee Angel. They're extremely articulate in how they speak about Richard and reflect on those times and on his behavior, his actions or motivations as they see it. And I I found Sir Lady Java particularly poignant in a number of ways and not always entirely complimentary but always understanding, I think, of Richard. What was it like for you to to sit down for those interviews and really have these contemporary viewpoints about him from such a personal, private point of view?
0: When I met Lee Angel in Los Angeles, she actually introduced me to Java because I didn't know Java's depth of a relationship with Richard. Java was just so warm. We shot in her home. What I love about the angel and Java is they loved him so much through the good and the bad times, And they speak to what this film does, which is it's this is not about hagiography in looking at Richard's story. It's not just like he's so wonderful, but it's also calling him on those moments where he was a disappointment. Java was and is so reflective and a deep thinker. And I love that as a trans person, she met Richard when they were both very young. And both she and Lee speak to this idea of creating family outside of your own family, who could see Richard in his fullness and enjoy this communion that sometimes Richard could not have with people outside of the circle.
1: And maybe for people who have not yet seen the film, can you just tell us how they were connected to Richard?
0: Lee Angel was a longtime girlfriend and Sir Lady Java met Richard when he moved his family to Riverside, California after the great successes that he had in 1955. And Sir Lady Java is an LGBTQ activist former nightclub performer, and they were friends with Richard throughout his life. And I really loved what they were able to bring to the portrait, completing a full portrait of Richard, not just as performer, but what was Richard like with his friends, with this community?
1: In the film, the music scholar Jason King says Little Richard was very good at liberating other people, but not good at liberating himself. Can you maybe explain a bit more what you think Jason meant with that quote?
0: I think Richard got caught up in a lot of cultural norms of his time and not being able to fully own all that he was. So when you saw him in performance, he incited you to have joy to get up and dance and shake your kale feather, to let it all hang out, as he continuously would tell people, let it all hang out with the beautiful little Richard. But the ability for him to let it all hang out was not always something that he could access.
1: The performances themselves, though, must have been self-liberating. He's a great performer, so maybe it's all an act, but it does... Just seem like he's expressing total freedom in those moments.
0: Oh, yeah. He's taking his shirt off. He's taking his shoes off. He's throwing his clothing into the audience. At a certain point, women are throwing their underwear on the stage. At the heyday, there is quite pandemonium that breaks out. And that he is a leader in inciting in his engagement with the audience. They were quite memorable performances.
1: And you uncover, I think, some incredible performance footage. What were some of your favorites?
0: He's on a, a show in the UK. What I really love about that is we see the drummer, and then I was actually able to interview Tony Newman, who was the drummer in Sounds Incorporated, which was the backing band. For Richard on his first tour in the UK. So I love that we were able to go from the footage to the actual person who still, when he talks about Richard, he is in awe. He is transported, you could tell, to the joy and liberatory feeling of performing with him.
1: Well, I have to say that was my favorite footage as well. I love that footage. (laughs) And yeah, it's a great, great interview that you have with the drummer and it, it all just creates magic. So congratulations on that incredible sequence. So Richard gave many, many interviews. He was on all these talk shows, talked to lots of journalists. He died in 2020, as you mentioned, and you started working on the film after that point, correct? Yes, So you didn't get to interview him for the film. So I'm sure you can see where this is going, which is if you could have done a sit-down interview with Little Richard, what is the one question you would have liked to ask him?
0: I would have liked to have known about who was his great male love. We know about the women. We know about his family. We know about, I've spoken with Miss Ernestine, the lady he was married to. And all of them loved him so much and they were in his life until right before he passed away. But what we couldn't find and what I would want to know is who was that male?
1: Love or lovers? I wonder what he would have said.
0: Oh child, shut up (laughs) (laughs) I think I would have got a shut up, but I would have tried.
1: I love it. Yeah. I I mean, I think you would have been very proud to get that shut up. It would have been an honor, I'm sure.
0: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Lisa, it's been an honor to talk to you today. The film is, as you say, it's a celebration of Little Richard. I think it's also a 360 degree portrait. So it's not all, you know, sunshine and bouquets, uh, but it's a fascinating, fully developed portrait of an incredible American figure and hero, I think.
0: Yes, it's an examination of the man and the cultural context that he lived in and accessed in such a unique way. And I'm really excited that anyone who has Mac can now watch it.
1: Absolutely, you should definitely check it out. It's a great film to watch over the holidays too. Thanks again, Lisa, congratulations, and look forward to seeing what comes next for you.
0: Same here, thank you so much, Ken.
1: Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves?
0: My hidden gem is called Richland. I recently saw it at the SF Films Doc Stories, and it is the story of richland washington it's a town that in the 50s or the 40s actually was created to manufacture plutonium and it's not only a portrait of the past but also of this place now with this really incredible history